the stress that a veterinarian, a vet tech, a vet assistant, a receptionist would have, you know, in a, a veterinary practice might look very different than somebody who is working in at a dermatology clinic. Social workers help people. Wait a second. You have people in your veterinary practice. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today I talk to Janet Hoy Gerlach. She is a professor of social work at the University of Toledo and founder of One Health People Animal Wellness Services, OPAWS. And she wrote the book on what social workers need to know about pets in Human-Animal Interactions, A Social Work Guide. So what about in veterinary practice? What about helping grieving pet owners in the moment? What about someone outside HR to feel out the emotional weather in your hospital? A veterinary social worker could fill a bigger gap than the standard session available from an EAP. So, Janet starts with, what could a veterinary social worker do? Veterinary social work, most narrowly defined, absolutely, you know, I I think for many folks, you know, brings to mind the social worker that is working very closely with veterinary professionals to help support mental wellness and help to reduce stress either by directly providing that support with the veterinary staff and or by working with the human clients and helping to address those human sort of issues that arise in the practice of veterinary medicine so that the veterinary folks can focus on the vet pieces. And veterinary social work is also more broadly defined and understood as sort of the the needs, the human needs that arise at the human-animal bond or the intersection of people and animals. And that would be the triangle, including the client slash pet owners as well. Yeah. So really, and then that can be much more broad. Um, For example, the University of Tennessee, which I consider the, the mothership, you know, they have the veterinary social work program and Dr. Elizabeth Strand and just, you know, some powerhouses, they actually have sort of a a fourfold definition of veterinary social work that looks at, of course, you know, working within the veterinary practices, compassion fatigue, animal-assisted intervention, the link between violence toward animals and violence toward people, and grief. Grief. Unfortunately, many of our animal companions, as we well know, um, have different lifespans than us, so that does tend to come up. Uh, widely. So that's that's a, a broader lens. And then if you look at the International uh, Veterinary Social Work Association, that's a new organization doing great things, great resource, want to give a shout out to them. They look at it very broadly as, as social workers attending to the needs that arise in, in the human-animal bond. So, And can I ask, I think many people think of social workers they think typically of people who are helping people. So uh, people who are struggling with poverty or joblessness. So people who are navigating their way through those issues. And of course, the social workers we might come most in contact or think about most of in the media are the social workers who work with children. Veterinary social workers, it sounds like they're very narrow things they can work on, very wide things. 
in general, how would you describe the difference between a therapist who might help a pet owner with grief, a therapist who might help a veterinarian with stress or burnout, compassion, fatigue, depression, and a veterinary social worker? How would the therapist and the social worker, how do their two little Venn circles match up? And separate? I love, love the Venn diagram. And great question. I was just presenting with a, a veterinary social worker who's actually in, in Oregon at a humane society, Kelly Bremkin. And the very first thing we did, kind of a quasi icebreaker, most of the folks in our audience were veterinarians, was just, you know, what is a social worker? And everybody, you know, kind of talking amongst themselves at their tables. And they actually had real good understanding. <laughs> I am a college professor, and when I teach, I work with my students to have an elevator speech. We always talk about, you know, home for the holidays, and you're sitting with your family, and the family's like, so why do you want to take people's babies away? Like, <laughs> and, <laughs> That's and you're the not making money, and everyone's going to hate you. Like, why do you want to, you know, yeah, there's definitely, you know, very specific associations. But social work is actually a profession, so like nursing, teaching, physical therapy. So you have to go to a professional program. Um, when you come out of it, there's a bachelor's level license. And then the master's is sort of a advanced independent practice license. And your training, you learn evidence-based interventions, change strategies for individuals, including families, couples, groups, and then some at the organization and program level and then some at the community and policy level. There's sort of a threefold that every social worker, by definition, should be able to have basic evidence-based change interventions that they can bring to the table at the individual, the organization or program, and then more of the community level. Most social workers don't live across all of those, but rather specialize so in, in master's programs, again, they have those foundations and they hone those skills across those three areas. However, for example, where I teach, I actually am the lead faculty in the mental health concentration. So I teach suicide risk assessment. I teach you know, evidence-based practices around working with depression, anxiety, trauma, but they also take classes in grant writing and community organizing and program development. And then some folks specialize in that and build out their skills, but they can still do a suicide risk assessment, hopefully. So I guess the going to the question that you asked about the difference between a therapist who's not a social worker and a therapist who is a, a veterinary social worker, for example, or any other sort Therapist is, is a, a broader role. So a therapist could be somebody with a degree in counseling or psychology or social work. There's a range of different people who legally can be in a, a therapy role and, and sort of bill mental health insurance providers and the, the providers, you know, and, and often states sort of credential like who can have that role and provide those services. And so there's some basics in that Venn diagram, you know, understanding basic mental health issues and the basic, you know, evidence-based strategies to treat them, assessing somebody, basic mental health practice skills that anybody that you see that is licensed and has in their scope of practice therapy should be able to do. If they're licensed to do it in the state that they're in, 
but means they pass an exam and have education. And some of the differences are social workers bring typically a more holistic lens to the table. So again, in addition to that training, they've also learned how to work with programs and how to work with policies and and communities. A veterinary social worker in particular specializes in not just those three areas, but those three areas as people experience them in like veterinary settings. So the stress that a veterinarian, a vet tech, a vet assistant, a receptionist would have, you know, in a veterinary practice might look very different than somebody who is working in at a dermatology clinic or, you know, a carpet sales store or, you know, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of stressors that people from all walks of life have in their organizations, but a veterinary social work looks at things like euthanasia is not a stressor. And then often it's not a stressor. I mean, like that, that can actually be a way to, you know, have an animal end suffering and be released from pain. Um, I think it's like the convenience euthanasias that get into the, you know, but that's a very unique kind of a, a stressor. So what a veterinary social worker brings to the table that's different than, you know, a therapist that you may see, you know, who's on your insurance is somebody that has had additional you know, training, study, skill development around the specific stressors and strengths related to the people that care for animals and their work environments. It sounds like there is the possibility that a therapist who had spent a lot of time working in the veterinary profession or who had previous veterinary profession knowledge might be able to kind of speak the lingo and understand those things. And a veterinary social worker might specifically have those things baked into the degree and their work that they do there. I'm wondering, in your vision, given the fact that veterinary social work, I love the way it kind of started out very small and went all the way up the chain of organization to the very top. And I'm like, holy crap. And then you explained, oh, most people don't engage with all those levels all the time. The wider community, this particular agency organization, the individual people. In your vision, given the fact that kind of by numbers, how few people are out there who have been trained specifically as veterinary social workers, what vision do you have or do these programs have that how these people will interact with individual private practices? Like how would that play out at an individual five to 10 doctor practice or a one to two doctor practice? When might they interact with a veterinary social worker over the course of the next few years, possibly? Well, I hope that anybody, like as we, you know, move forward over the next several years, that any practice that wants the support of veterinary social workers is able to to access. The work that veterinary practices do is so important and the demand is just going up along with the stressors because as you know, you I'm sure know better than I the, the shortage that is being faced. Um, in social work, we have a saying like start where the client is at or meeting people where they're at. And so while there's, you know, certainly some basics, you know, well-being, resilience, you know, mental health support, helping, you know, with crisis, with grief, you know, somebody that's suicidal after they've euthanized a beloved animal or somebody that's angry and going off on the, the staff. You know, not that we're bouncers or, you know, interpersonal 
you know, warriors is really some of this are skills, you know, that we both have expertise in, but also with some, some coaching can help equip staff. But, you know, sometimes it's nice just to pass off, you know, so if Mr. You know, Jones is you know, just having a horrible day and comes in and starts, you know, having somebody who can help de-escalate that, you know, using some basic skills that sort of tap into, you know, when we humans get escalated, how to, how to wind that back down. Those are basics that I think cut across. But I think, you know, first and foremost would be getting a really good understanding of from the perspective of the folks at that practice, what they need, what they think would be most helpful, kind of, you know, these are the things that a veterinary social worker can do. Maybe we're in the process of selling the practice to a corporation and staff are struggling with the standardization and I can't give reductions in costs and services like I used, you know, they count that, you know, whatever those changes are. So in that case, really looking at what are things that are, you know, supports and protective factors that we can bring in to help offset that, maybe transition that from a a threat to an opportunity. And I don't mean that in a Pollyanna way. I mean, certainly there's trade-offs when you have a, I've been there, you know, when you have a bigger company buying a a smaller, you know, single or, you know, a couple people owned thing, like you lose some things. That can be really tough and a stress. However, there's things that can be brought in, like a, a you know professional development fund, or you know you make X profit and you you have a fund that you can do a project with, or you could use to support veterinary care for people who are struggling to afford. Or I mean, things that basically shift back to staff and veterinarians, you know, feeling like they have autonomy and ownership. I mean, the standardization has to be there, but if how I'm tweaking them is my brainstorming, but these are from, you know, organizational development literature. These are research-based, you know, people stick around after a takeover when they can, you know, they feel like they have voice, they still have autonomy, they have input, they see it as something that could be in their interest, maybe they get bonuses. So that's just one example of a practice with a specific issue. You know, maybe they're having, you know, long wait times and people are angry in the lobbies. So like, you know, some of it is, I guess, doing an assessment. I'm wondering kind of what sounds of what you're, that thing you mentioned. First of all, when you said how they're feeling about it, I feel like one safety valve that is often employed in private practice is an EAP. And usually, I mean, it's not nearly as expensive as a full-on health insurance with a robust mental health framework. So the employee assistance program through some provider is often less than that. So they might provide that. People are going to struggle with some things, but that's individually. If you as an employee are going to struggle with this, we have an EAP so you can think these things through. And then those things you mentioned about like, hey, we might have more robust professional development. There are ways in which maybe we'll have new ways to incentivize you to stay here in ways that we couldn't do that in a smaller place. I feel like then the business and HR people do that. I'm wondering with the veterinary social worker, is there a way in which they brainstorm or color those kinds of things that people might already see. Therapists and mental health, EAP, if we're going to go through something or we've gone through something. And then if we're going to develop programs to incentivize, well, that's all HR leadership stuff. We don't need a veterinary social worker. Is there a particular flavor or color of perspective that the veterinary social worker brings to those things that people have treated as, this is totally like a money leadership business thing? 
I think if we look at it from the standpoint of well-being, and that certainly there's a Venn diagram. Good HR folks are fabulous, you know, in terms of trying to bring wellness programming. So I think it's a partnership there. But, you know, the facilitation skills, the ability of a, a veterinary social worker to kind of be differentiated from, like, management and the boundaries, you know, need to be carefully defined up front. So to be a sort of safe, you know, presence or person, not that the other folks aren't safe, but, you know, these are the other folks are, you know, people that evaluate your performance and hire you and fire you. You know, a veterinary social worker is there to support all of the staff, including the HR person, to help each of them thrive in their their roles. So the, the lens is, is a, a little broader. And then, you know, the well-being focus, for example, like, you know, incentivizing, like a program that's just rolled out from HR is going to look really different than a brainstorming session with staff, right. where there, there's, there's debriefing happening. Right. They're sharing like these are the things I'm scared of. These are the things I'm worried about. Here's the places I'm going to apply to, you know, and then what would be most meaningful to them? I mean, it really needs to be a bottom up in order for the, the you know, because I mean, animal people are often very intuitive and sharp. You know, they're not just listening to words like they read body language for a living of other species. <laughs> you know, I mean, so it, it, to be authentically, you know, feel like you have autonomy and voice, you know, bringing folks together and helping them to build something like the staff actually need to, to, for them to have buy-in, it needs to be authentic. So it really needs to be something that they would co-build with HR and in those kinds of endeavors, the veterinary social work can really catalyze. The veterinary social workers is more of like the, the catalyst and the, the facilitator and helping to engage the staff from a well-being standpoint and kind of heading off those sort of the, the stressors that may not be expressed to the, the higher level, the safety valve of communication. You know, when I told you Kelly Brempton and I presented at a veterinary conference a couple months ago, this great phrase, she coined it, um, but supply closet intervention. And I love that because she's like, nobody has the time to come and sit in my office and tell me, like, these are the things that are going, you know, wrong today. What I find is people crying in the supply closets or, you know, just sort of sitting there like mumbling into, you know, you know, clenching their fists or whatever, just sort of standing there blankly. And, and so the supply closet interventions can be another, you know, again, that's something that like, the veterinary social work almost goes on rounds in the clinic, just sort of connecting with each part. If it's a quote unquote slow day, checking in with staff. So being boots on the ground, but not from a quote, you know, the staff, you know, it's about being boots on the ground for everybody's well-being, not to like spy and collect data. So let me ask, it sounds like the possibility, I see the rich opportunity for the veterinary social worker. I also see the danger, as you represented, for instance, we hear stuff about human resources. The ideal of human resources, at least on many human resources professionals, yes, they are, they have, they're following management, leadership, they're following the business goals, they're helping make those happen, but they feel like they have some ownership and connection 
to the humans among their resources. And it's kind of their job to, in a way, represent them. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people eventually feel betrayed because the most powerful in this dynamic between the employees and the employer is the employer feels like they control the purse strings. HR knows it. And they have to kind of do whatever the employers say. It sounds like there's this possibility where the veterinary social worker is even standing maybe a step outside from where HR is. Does that put a veterinary social worker, if they're there for any stretch of time, either a full-time job or a part-time job or a long stint, are they in a tough situation trying to balance what's being said by the employees and the people here and then these employers? Is that a hard balance being stuck in that triad and maybe even stuck in the triad with pet owners too? If they see some weird dynamics, having to represent all these people at all times seems hard. It's difficult. It really brings another skill set to the table. And I guess that this is another, you know, when you asked about what's unique about social work, you know, working with an individual or a couple individuals is very different than working with a family or a neighborhood, let's say, you know, you're working with, you know, there's illegal dumping happening in a neighborhood and people have all sorts of, you know, some are like, cool, I put my trash there too. It's nice. You know, <laughs> other people are like, heck no, that's in front of my house, you know? You know, so using some of our facilitation skills, not necessarily wearing the, you know, individual therapist hat, but really looking at the whole practice as, you know, or system as an organism, if you will, and like its well-being. Like the high tide raises all boats. If you'll forgive, I'm not like big on cliches, but I like that one. I mean, a healthy, thriving practice where there's really well-being for, you know, the HR person's happy, the bottom line is healthy, the staff feel invested in, and like they're working at the top of their skills. You know, I know it's easier said than done. I, I worked in public mental health for many years before I went into academe where we were chronically underfunded, understaffed, over caseloaded. <laughs> you know, I understand. So I don't want to sound like Pollyanna here. I also, I think that more than one thing can be true. I think the, the stressors have, have probably never been greater in many ways, you know, for what veterinary practices are facing. I also think that the strengths that are being developed, you know, they're building in you know, interpersonal and, and mental health curriculum right in the veterinary schools. They're proactively, you know, trying to to address, you know, payment and like what are, you know, most of us like use credit cards. So now there's care credit. I mean, like there's innovations. Like most of us don't just write, you know, checks or pay outright for big expenses. We finance a lot of things. Not that we want to finance vet med across the board, but I mean, I, mean, I just see innovations and, and, and so much thinking out of the, the box. And then we have a like generation Z and the millennials that, you know, from what I've seen from demographic research, you know, it, it's just going to become more veterinaries practices, you know, I mean, animals are moving away from quote unquote property status, companion animals, and more and more people are considering them family. And so the veterinary practices are, you know, kind of an extension of, you know, family medical care. I mean, so the, I don't see the prioritization of that going away, which means people are going to want to get their animals in there and get care and put resources toward that. Especially think your business is interesting because, as you've said, you've worked with just humans in the human mental health space and then this sort of dance between veterinary and, and 
human needs in the veterinary practice is fairly new. So there's the EAP, there's therapists outside, there's business consultants who can come in, there's emotional well-being consultants who can come in. But the social work thing is kind of new. With your vision, if somebody's like, oh, I'm curious about this, but I don't think the you know, you mentioned like care credit and we got payment plans out there and pet insurance. They're sort of like automatic. There are automatic solutions out there if you want to experiment with that. And I feel like veterinary social work, you're kind of a little bit out there at the forefront of trying to introduce this to the private practice world. What is, do you think the next, if somebody hears this and they're like, oh, I'm curious about this, where does, should their curiosity lead given the fact that maybe there's not an easy way to go, well, we're just going to go hire a veterinary social worker full time. Or there's one that we have a school right there. There's one that happens to be right in the area and we're going to grab one there. If they're curious about what this role could do or what are a couple ways they could delve more? Another fabulous question. I'm a big fan of data. You know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a geek. I'm a social scientist as well as a social worker. And I think I'm also a fan of like the quote unquote pilot. Certainly if they're familiar with veterinary social work and they, you know, like the the International Veterinary Social Work Association and the University of Tennessee's Veterinary Social Work Program are both fantastic resources that a practice could reach out to and say, hey, you know, I believe they both have lists. You know, we're looking for somebody. Can you help us in, in this area to find somebody or somebody that might be willing to relocate? It's still new enough and it's still kind of a plum, like, valued, you know, the veterinary social, <laughs> woo, like, that people, you know, are willing to, you know, they value the work enough and they see themselves making a, a career. You know, it's not just a job to where they, they may be willing to, to relocate. I mean, I right. have former students that have moved. I know people that have moved across the country to get, you know, a job as a veterinary social worker at a vet practice. So if somebody's ready to make that investment, you know, there's certainly that. Another possibility would be developing an internship, which takes a bit of planning because you don't have a veterinary social worker in the clinic. However, there is a guidebook by Dr. Pamela Linden that has a chapter that I co-authored with a former student and a vet practice owner uh, where we developed an internship with the social work school. And I did off-site supervision and I actually brought in a veterinary social worker from Ohio State and she zoomed in. And the social worker, there's, you know, it's not just somebody wet behind the ears. It was somebody who was experienced in other settings. The vet social work was the newer part and she was getting her master's, but she had a bachelor's, she had a license. We spelled all that out in our chapter in the book, but really, so finding a social work school and asking for an intern and sending them the the chapter or the book or, you know, (laughs) here's how you do it. You don't have to figure it out. They're always looking for placements. I can say, you know, most social work schools are always looking for good placements for students to build skills at those individual organizational and community levels. And veterinary practices are fantastic. I mean, they're practicing medicine, interprofessional teamwork, like many human needs coming in, grief. The practice we have had the student at, you know, we've had a couple folks, you know, with crises, living in cars, you know, they had a, a person recently who had to euthanize a dog very, you know, and ended up feeling suicidal himself, like things that you would get in any good internship. So that's a way 
it's a usually an academic year commitment would be another. And then the third I would say would be contracting with a, a veterinary social work practice. I have one, Dr. Aviva Vincent, who's the president of the International Veterinary Social Work Association, has one, um, Sandra Breckenridge, who I would say is like one of the, if not the like most, you know, skilled, experienced veterinary social work. She's like the go-to for, she's got a practice and you could contract for, you know, however many hours a week of support or, or however you decide to work it and then look at metrics, look at retention, look at staff report of well-being. I'm interested in, in retention specifically because, you know, the sustainability, if somebody does decide to hire, like how much are you gaining by not losing staff might be enough to cover a paid position. And yet you're not going to necessarily see that up front. But if, if you can see changes, you know, in, in your, your staff, your practice, then that might support you know, a more sustainable, but certainly, you know, contracting or bringing in a student and doing some, some data could be helpful and give, you know, more information about how this could really serve the practice and help it to thrive. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. This is sort of my second big question, and this might be too big a question, or it might just be so context-based it's not possible. But imagine the hypothetical. There's a leader and manager who's listened to this podcast, and the leader and manager is kind of excited by this veterinary social work idea, but right now they can't set up the pilot, but they are experiencing problems you're talking about. So they're experiencing problems at their practice of people. We are disappointed in the fact that we can't really help people with grief. We're not equipped for it. And we can't help. This retention problem is really tough. This job is really hard. And we're having trouble in our practice, which is overly busy, understaffed. We just can't get, we can't see straight to be able to look ahead to make a plan as a veterinary social worker, thinking about issues with grief, thinking about issues with retention, thinking about issues with mental health and emotional well-being, are there pitches, if you were standing up in front of a presentation at AVMA or something, you'd say, look, these three things, these five things, I really want you to think about this. If you can't bring in a veterinary social worker, maybe these adjustments could get you a little healthier triage. Could you, can you offer any triage for these big problems that feel like they come from the work you've done in social work? 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's a wonderful question because a lot of times, you know, triage is where we have to start. First and foremost, we need to survive. <laughs> we need to get through the day. I think that the idea of, well, psychological safety is broad. And if you have it, you know what it is. And I feel like if you haven't seen it properly or you don't have it, it's hard to figure out how to build it. And sometimes, you know, there has to be some of a do-over, you know, me saying something like, I haven't been, you know, right now we're all going through stress and I haven't, I want to be the kind of leader that you can come to me, you know, if you're doing something illegal or you're sleeping or, you know, of course you're going to get, but I mean, in general, (laughs) you know, we, we make mistakes we learn from mistakes. Nobody is mistake-free. We're all dealing with problems. I want you to be able to approach me and then make steps so that, you know, I, I think opening the lines of communication up and, and modeling support so that, you know, staff can do that with each other. Debriefing, you know, if there's been a really difficult case, you know, taking a, I know time is precious, but we lose it if we lose people. And, you know, like ask the employee assistance program, if you're paying for it, there's things they may be doing, able to do for you that you're already paying for. Like if you've had, you know, something really horrific happen, you know, maybe they can debrief or give you some talking points as a manager so you can bring, you know, your staff together and just, you know, it's not long necessarily. It could be five or 10 minutes, but it, it can be a game changer in terms of it helps people to process. So they're not going home and thinking about that horrific case for the rest of the night. They've had time. There's more room outside of us than inside and giving people a safe place to put, you know, to externalize it. And, oh my gosh, yeah, I did do this. And that really sucked. <laughs> like, but, you know, and I think you know, every person having a chance to just sort of put together a share. You know, we do it anyway. Like we might be texting or like, you know, talking in the break room, having like little hurried, like, holy heck, like that was the nightmare, you know. But right. I mean, letting people have a, you know, honoring it. Right. Yeah, this there's was, no, a lot was, of times we yeah, lose the formal this acknowledgement. Work. This was emotional labor, man. Like this, this was heavy lifting. And like, you know, so just, just having like. And, and again, you don't have to be a mental health expert. Call your EAP. You know, I need some coaching. Or do you do this? Or is it, you know, because some of it, you know, is more, you know, of course, if somebody's having ongoing issues, then they would go for individual help. But ideally, a EAP is is helping with well-being, you know, partnering with, with HR and I, you know, maximally utilizing that. They get, okay. you pay them the same typically, no matter, I've worked EAP, <laughs> like, so your contract is <laughs> a contract. We have high utilizers, we have low utilizers. The EAP makes the same money. Staff may or may not use it. When I've worked with the Humane Society, like, folks were like, they don't understand our stressors. They don't deal with kitten season. They've never had to euthanize a healthy animal. You know, they've never had somebody, you know, scream at them and, and leave a puppy in the parking lot and drive away and the puppy has a broken leg. You get the idea, you know, yeah. so... But I think, you know, a lot of times that's a resource that's already there. I think, you know, modeling the supportive communication, restarting explicitly, because if you haven't been doing that, and all of us at some times or others are not doing it because we are human. And when we're human, we go into the fight flight or we go into the freeze. We're hardwired. We're mammals. And veterinary folks, you know, again, they, they know way more about that stuff than 
than I do, how mammals stress works. But what I do know is that it's hard to use the thinking logic part of our brain that can solve a lot of the contemporary problems we face when we're in our limbic, you know, so helping people to come back out of that can make a difference to their, their ability to go home and kind of transition, you know, into their home life without carrying work with them. So I think those the supportive. And then a third thing, if there was a possibility of training a couple staff would be there's what's called mental health first aid. And it's like, it's first aid for mental health, really. I mean, it's a training like physical health first aid. You have to go through it. You get credentialed. Okay. It might be too much of an investment for every person to do it, but maybe having a couple that are kind of, you know, in every team, there's sort of the emotional leaders, the ones that like know how everybody's doing and check in, and they need to be checked in on too. <laughs> Many times that may be the hospital manager or it could be a veterinarian or a vet tech, um, but like getting, you know, a couple people, I say two, because I like people to you know, be able to tag team that can do some sort of on-site mental health first aid, help people get hooked up with the EAP. And peer support is its own thing. You know, that can be powerful because you know the person has the lived experience of what you're going through too. So just helping to equip people to take, you know, some care of each other. And all of those can help buffer us. You know, I mean, stress can be pretty awful when we're, we're going through it, but stress by itself isn't typically what what does us in at a job it's it's not having the resources to manage it you know at some point there's a critical mass and too much stress but right. but a lot of things you know we we weather some incredibly stressful situations as humans and and can do it with decent health if we have you know the things in place to take care of ourselves so I love that idea of if somebody was really interested in learning, they don't want to be a mental health professional, but they want to help people better in their practice, that there are kind of certifications and study to do for that. And I liked your mention that I like to see these people in pairs because I know this happens because I've heard people talk about it. You were at a very small practice. There is one tech or one receptionist or sometimes an associate or maybe the manager there's someone who's good at talking to the person whose dog has just died, or there's someone who's good at talking to the person who was already freaking out when they got there, and now they're sort of emotionally out of control. They're the good person to take the client aside and be able to talk to them, and they just do it. They've got implicit training, or they were good at it as a kid, and they've developed that. They had a, they had a trait that they were good at listening and empathizing, and they've carried that forward with them. So you have one or two of those people. So the mental health first aid for the team members is one thing. Does that same thing work in the exact same way for those people when they direct it toward the client? Is it you Absolutely. have the exact same advice? Yes. It's mental health. It's just like if a teammate was having, you know, you know, a heart. I hate with what just happened in football to even bring that up. That's, that's so... Ugh. But yeah, you know, you know how to do CPR, you know how to do CPR. I mean, it's not quite that concrete, you know, it's not quite that tangible, but I mean, essentially, you know, you, you have an understanding of, of the different kinds of mental health symptoms and some specific responses and, and when it might need more intervention. And ultimately, if we, we sort of back up, you know, because I'm a social worker, I can kind of bounce. So we're talking about the program people yeah. level, but 
you know, what could people do? They don't, you know, they're just trying to triage and get through the day. I think, you know, taking stock of the strengths, like you mentioned the people that are really good at talking to people. That's a strength. You know, if, if they're willing, you know, if we are able, willing to send somebody to mental health first aid, you know, that's a strength. But, you know, and again, this isn't bad or wrong or abnormal as humans were hardwired to pay attention to threats because the rustling in the bush could have been a saber toothed tiger. And even if nine times it wasn't the 10 time it was and we're eaten. So we need to look, you know, it's rustling. We got to figure it out. However, that often, you know, lends to us not paying attention to the strengths and the resources we do have. And that is something, another thing that, that social work specifically as a profession is trained to bring to the table not to ignore the, the problems, the needs, but to never lose sight and, and to help people and, and organizations identify the strengths and the assets and the resources that they have that have gotten them this far, that they can build on. You know, what do we do really well here? Like, what are we proud of? What was some, you know, and I don't want to be all cheesy, like fly like an eagle, soar over your troubles. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> But just for real, like what was a case that was really tough that, you know, folks felt good about? How did that happen? There was something, you know, every practice has strengths. Every team has strengths, but it's the stressors that get a lot of our attention, but it's the strengths that, that help us. And if we can figure out what those are and how to bring them into the triaging, again, the stress by itself isn't what does it in, does us in. It's stress without resource to support. Do you encourage practices to, so one way is the one-on-one situation. So an animal has a really bad prognosis or something Mm -hmm. really terrible happened to it and it clearly traumatized the client or this is a euthanasia or the animal died and they weren't expecting it. So for all the reasons, the client is reacting really roughly to it. And I think there's the easiest tips have been provided for years, which is make a place where they can sit and process, make a place where they don't feel rushed. But as far as what to do after that, most communities, I don't know how many big cities do. Maybe there are a lot. Pet grief groups don't exist. So if somebody's like, we don't have any grief, you can go to a therapist. We could put you in touch with someone. But it's not like a group of people who could get together and talk about this with you. And we are really busy. We're the vet tech. We are busy. We can't sit here for half an hour, an hour and process. And you deserve that time. Do you ever encourage or that practices themselves try to set up these almost external groups where if this was rough for you here, this is also a place where you can come back and meet with other people who had that same experience here, or do they sort of, we want to push that outside the doors. In other words, is that something you would include inside the branding or makeup of your business or be something we would push you out to somewhere else, but not here. We don't talk about pet grief all the time. It really, I I hate when people answer my question with, it depends, but (laughs) It's about what the practice wants. So some practices offer dog training and grooming and would love to be like a pet community center. Like they see themselves as broader. That would be a place where they might want to bring it in and have the veterinary social worker, you know, and a staff or whoever wants, you know, I think it's helpful to have a co-facilitator when you can. Yeah, that would be a great way to to sort of, you know, bring people into the, the community or I'm sorry, bring the community, bring people into the practice for folks that are more focused on, you know, the, the medicine. This and, is a hospital. Yeah, right? this is it's not like a full I, service. You know, I have a, an incredible, you know, 
job that I'm, I'm doing, I'm called to do it. You know, they're both beautiful practice models, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, there's so much work to do in this world. And thank goodness there's folks doing both kinds. But if it's, you know, we want to keep this, you know, focused on medicine, we don't want people, you know, you know, coming for dog training or hanging out, you know, grieving, then it could be, you know, something that's done remotely. I've seen practices, you know, that, that will set up something remotely. I've seen them like libraries. Like and sometimes. by remotely, do you mean in another place or do you mean like... Oh, I'm sorry, like, like um, online, like a Zoom. Yeah, like Zoom, Google Meet. Yeah, okay, yeah. I've, yeah, seen, yeah. I've seen like groups, you know, even like just drop-ins where there's just a time every week and the veterinary social worker is on and people can come on and or nobody can be there, but it's just a set time. I've seen check-in calls. So, you know, the vet social worker calling the person that they spent, you know, 40 minutes with, or maybe they, they were otherwise working, but a staff, like, I'm really worried about, you know, Ms. Smith, can you, you know, so, so doing reach outs, you know, and providing some phone support, not therapy, but, you know, brace basic grief support. And if the person needs help linking to something more, you know, if, if what you're hearing is, you know, the person saying things that are concerning you, you know, for their safety, for example, you know, then of course, you, you know, the veterinary social worker could could take steps to connect them with, you know, the resources and supports in the community. There's a range of ways I think that that could be addressed. It really depends on on what the practice, you know, what feels like, you know, this is this is how we do it here, you know, but all good. Can I ask your in? So this is maybe this is really asking too much inside baseball, but I'm really curious about you mentioned something there about the point. Well, this is not therapy. This grief group is one thing. And if you need something really extended and personalized, that's another step. I think there's a sense among people, they, all these veterinary professionals generally, they are empathetic. They do have emotions they're processing these euthanasias and these deaths and these illnesses as well. They're just better at it, better boundaries or whatever they are. This cracking open the can of worms of your team member who seems like they're really struggling or that's maybe easier. These clients, you've run into it where if I start this conversation, I am not going to be able to extricate myself from this conversation. And I don't have time to sit here and process all your difficulty about this you should be heard. I can't hear you and you need to help beyond this. Are there certain phrases or certain ways you as a social worker had to navigate within, I have X amount of time with this person or I am responsible for this part. This person has all these problems. And as a human being, I want to help them with all these problems. That's not my job and I can't do it. How do you do that? The gentle handoff of what I can move them on to something else because I'm not capable of helping them with this mental health issue, this grief issue this issue again fabulous and it's something that we work on our whole careers you know we're always yeah. getting better at it <laughs> sometimes it's harder sometimes it's easier i mean i think one piece is what we would call informed consent but being upfront about you know the parameters in this group we're you know not going to get into individualized you know treatment of you know if you're you're having specific you know symptoms of panic attacks since your dog has that, you know, but we're going to be talking about like our feelings, our grief experiences, how it's affecting our functioning, things that have been helpful. If that is something that you need and, and that you want, I can absolutely help, you know, look at resources with you. And 
help you, you know, come up with a plan and make those connections. So being, I think, very upfront about what a service, and that's any service, because therapy is yes. only like an hour or 50 minutes. And for example, same thing, all of us, you know, anybody going to therapy has more issues or worries than can be talked about in therapy. So helping a person, you know, to prioritize what's most, you know, what do we want to make sure we talk about today? What's really been on your mind or what, what do you feel is most important and I may have some ideas too. If again, so, you know, my like my the times I would sort of jump over somebody's self determination is safety or well being. Okay. Like if I'm really, you know, I want to check back in on something because I'm really worried about their safety or their health at like a very fundamental level. You know that those would be times. But other than that, you know, helping them kind of figure out. Okay, no, I want to because some people are long talkers and they could spend an entire yeah. session. Hello. <laughs> I'm pointing at myself for anybody <laughs> who's not seeing that, which is, I guess, everybody. <laughs> but it's so helping them to prioritize. And then we can go back to that. You know, I hear, you know, this sounds like, you know, so much is happening here. When we started today, you said you really wanted to make sure we talked about X. So I want to make sure we get to X. So, like, what do you think about putting Y, you know, on hold? you know, pause and let's check in on X here. And then we can come back to Y if there's more you feel like you need to say. So some of it, yeah. And it took me, you know, I didn't just come out of the social work program hatch. With these <laughs> some of it is practice experience, just, just like any other, you know, practice setting. But, you know, so similarly in groups, and that's why I said it's, it's helpful to do groups in pairs. If you're doing individual work with somebody and, and they really start to have a, a breakdown, then of course we shift gears with them. We attend to that. We help them, you know, through that and then figure out collaboratively with them, like what are the next steps we need to take in a group? It, it can be helpful to have somebody that can go with the person and the, the other, the co-facilitator, like, you know, one person can go with the person that's, that's sort of having the overwhelm emotion. I mean, that happens with grief and in grief groups, people can cry and that's okay. But like, you know, somebody's just can't, get themselves back together. They're uncomfortable. They don't want to be sitting in the group anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I love the fact that your idea, so putting a pin in it and that you said, oh, it takes us many years to figure out how to have this conversation really well. We're always learning, lifelong learning. Right. And medically, I feel like veterinarians and vet techs have already been asked by the job to do what you're talking about, where someone comes in with an animal and there are five things wrong with this animal. We have a half an hour and you don't have the money to do all five things. So for instance, with therapy, you can have a hundred things. If you can go to therapy forever and all time, then we can sort this out. But if you're here to help you with your most difficult thing that's bothering you the most now, let me put a pin in your, you've told me five things. Let's put, but you said this is the most important. So let's put a pin in these four and let's talk about the diagnostics and let's talk about what could be wrong with this one condition. That same thinking could also be employed when someone explodes with five things that are causing them a problem emotionally. You've said this is the most important one. So let's circle back to that. I feel like good vets and vet techs take, sometimes it takes them years to learn that too, but it's, it sounds like the same skill. You're just putting a pin in it. You're helping them prioritize. Yeah. It's about, yeah. Active listening helping people to express, you know, reflect on and analyze what they they need to. And that may shift too. Like if I'm like, you said you want to talk about X, 
I want to make sure we have time for that. What do you think about putting a pin in Y? And if they're like, you know what? Forget it. <laughs> That's what, you know, we don't need to get in power struggles. We have to, you know, unless X was like, I'm going to be a serial killer or something like then we got to, you know, legally and ethically, we got things to do. But like, other than that, like, you know, we, but revisiting it, like just holding it back up for the person to make sure that, that I'm not missing what they've told me. You know, I, I have ideas about what I think, but you know, like I said, I'm a data person and people tend to be the best experts on themselves. So if I'm learning from a person, what, what they're feeling, you know, is important, then I, I want to make sure that we're, we're working from that. And of course I integrate that with, you know, the science, the theory, the best practices, but you're right. It's very parallel to, you know, a vet is going to do a, a thorough, you know, exam and they're going to, hear about whatever the want, but they're going to palpate. They're going to, you know, have a whole, I love how people can sort of see with their hands. I can't, I don't have that. <laughs> I can't either. It's I'm great. not very yeah. coordinated, all sorts of reasons. I would never be a good vet, but that sort of like ability to almost see what, what your hand is feeling just amazes me. Yeah. And then once they have that data, then they come up with, well, here's, you know, the options we have from, And then the person, you know, they kind of collaboratively decide what are the next steps. So there's definitely parallels there. So my last question, you've mentioned a couple times about you love data. And obviously veterinarians love data too, data and science. Like, let's make the best decision based on all the information we can gather. I mean, that's just beautiful. It feels sometimes different than our impression of conversations. These emotions are just... They just go forever. There's an infinity of anger, an infinity of sadness. But you, as it's kind of in the social sciences, you're like, no, no, this stuff can be quantified and evaluated. Is there data right now with your current, with your business focusing really on veterinary social work? Is there data in the next few years you're hoping to gather that you think could be really exciting answers you don't have so far about the kind of work you do that you're like, I'm hoping we can get this or I'm hoping we can get that? I tend to look like I like starting where the client is at and okay. in terms of, and so if we look at sort of the veterinary practices and there's a lot of diversity in that, what I've been hearing a lot about is, you know, the workforce shortage, retention, morale. So I am not aware of specific data. There's some research that looks at like compassion fatigue and interventions around that for veterinary staff, which I think is fantastic. I know some of the bigger corporations that have veterinary practices and and veterinary social work departments have been collecting data and I believe have reached out to, you know, the University of Tennessee and are, are looking at doing some analytics what I would like to see, you know, to answer your question, I, I guess I, I go back to the burning issues. <laughs> I guess it's the practitioner in me. You can't, I mean, I have well, a You ask the people what their yeah, problems I, were. I and you're like, yeah. like, what, like, what strengths do we have? How can we use those to keep our staff, you know, our healthy and feeling like they're invested in and making a difference? You know, everybody has a why, a reason that they, they got into this work and, the work that they do is so critically important, you know, for, for those of us that love and care for animals and, and so many folks seeing animals as family members, they're akin to like the family doctor for the, the animal family, you know, 
I mean, it, it's work that, you know, I think is just going to increase in terms of, you know, how it's valued, you know, for people. And so to get data around, you know, what, like I mentioned the factors, autonomy and um, feeling like you're invested in, you know, feeling like you have some control. I mean, with standardization, there's only so much, but anything that we, you know, you can, like ways to operationalize those, like a, a intervention, you know, maybe staff, like you, you know, professional development fund or a community project, like they make so much over the profit margin and they can take that money every month and do something with it. And they decide, you know, I don't, I don't know what it would look like. And the HR folks are brilliant and they, or the, you know, practice managers may have ideas, but putting, you know, some things together like that in a systematic way and getting some met, like what does retention look like? What does morale look like? What does moral injury look like? And if we can, you know, take care of the folks that we have, that's going to, I think, make a much more, you know, hopefully we can then recruit from a place of strength. Like we have a great team here. They're happy. <laughs> come join us as opposed to come to the Titanic. Sit with me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I guess I, I would be real interested on, right now on, on specific, you know, practice level interventions that can help offset the stressors and getting data. And then ultimately, if this retention, for example, I keep going to retention because of the monetary, you know, losses attached to turnover, you know, but if that metric can be captured, then it may be that enough money is saved by veterinary social work that, you know, practices, smaller practices could afford to, to hire or maybe share, maybe a couple. But, you know, I, I think business owners, you know, it's a risk. Like I said, I get it. I like data. So like if we could get, you know, some ways to pilot some things, get some data and then, you know, go into it knowing, you know, the expected outcome here is that we're going to hang on to more of our staff and they're going to be happier and healthier and, you know, feel like their career paths are opening up. Then that revenue could go into supports like veterinary social work positions because nobody, you know, wants to lose money. Sustainability is important. Want to learn more about veterinary social work? Email Janet at opawsllc at gmail.com. O-H-P-A-W-S-L-L-C. And that wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review wherever you listen. Tell your friends in VetMed about us. And remember, this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to solving your leadership headaches in our VetX Leaders community. Learn more at drdavenickel.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.